Welcome to the Alan and Ovi podcast. I'm Sally Dewar. I'm the CEO of ANO Consulting, and I'm really excited about today's podcast. Um, we've been running a series of sessions with board um, independent non-executives con to consider the roles of bank boards, expectations on them collectively and individually in relation to topical issues such as culture, uh, sustainability, the ESG agenda more broadly, diversity, equality and inclusion, financial soundness, and all of that in the context of a world of changing dynamics, economic fragility, war, life post the pandemic, not easy. All these issues play out in the terms of the firms they oversee and in the way that individuals on the board, whether executive or non-executive, demonstrate their leadership. Thinking and acting like owners must come from the top of the house. So to explore this with me today, I'm delighted to be talking to Fran Griffiths, a leading executive coach with 30 years experience of working with global FTSE 100 executives, thinking about leadership development, one-on-one -on -one coaching and cultural change. A very warm welcome, Fran. Thank you, Sally. Very nice to be here. Maybe we start with, um, you know, what makes a good leader? So, I mean, isn't that the $6 million question? And actually, just for a laugh, I googled this week how many leadership books were on Amazon just to see. 57,136. I mean, that's quite something, isn't it? So I guess what I'm not going to do, Sally, is give you a textbook answer. Good. Um, our listeners might be right, quite bored with that too. But I, I think what's interesting, or perhaps interesting for the listener here is, what do I notice when I work with senior leaders? The ones that are more effective, what do I notice them doing more rather than less? And I think there are probably, I mean, there are many things, but if I had to isolate the three that I think matter the most, um, and I don't particularly do this in order, but the first one is about integrity. So this is pretty binary. You can't have a little bit of integrity. You either got it or you haven't. And I think intuitively people in organizations know who has it and know who doesn't, but it starts with trust and it links to the next attribute, which is about empathy. So the leaders that I work with who I think get better results are good at putting themselves in the shoes of the people that are following them. And that includes, by the way, stakeholders, but they are good at having the emotional imagination to say, what is it like for them? And what then goes with that, the third piece of the puzzle is, and they are visionary. They, they're able to set a vision that is compelling, that it's clear, and that people can rally around. And if you haven't, if you've got any one of those three is missing, you're, I think you've got quite a few problems. So there are many things, but I think those three, when you ask me that question, I think those three really pop out for me. I mean, how about you though? What, what have you noticed? So I would um, build on what you've said with um, inspire, because yeah. I think having the ability to inspire those that work with you, your colleagues, um, your, 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 um, employees that sit within the teams is really essential. You want everybody in the firm to wake up every morning and think I'm acting and and behaving in the way I do because I want this firm to be successful. I want myself to be successful. And to me that comes from the inspiration of a of your leader. So I think I think inspiring, I think being able to navigate um the organization through you know, calm and stormy waters, you know, is really important. So you need somebody who is is calm in a crisis, you know, and that's 
that shows really good leadership for me. And then be able to oversee, so not get into the details, stand back and let everybody else feel empowered to to do their jobs and to, you know, to, to be successful. So knowing when to step in and when to step back out, I think is really important. I love that. And one of my favorite definitions of leadership, which I think you'll love too, in relation to what you just said, is Napoleon's, which is leaders are dealers in hope. So when you've got a crisis, you can't go into the boardroom or, you know, some some um, town hall and go, oh my God, what are we going to do? Your job as a leader is to give people hope, optimism and confidence. And if you think about, you know, what what's Zelensky doing right now? Dire circumstances. Actually, he's a merchant of hope. So I think that's a really important thing. And then the other thing that you just said around knowing when to get out, I think that's a really interesting idea for a leader. It's not necessarily how you intervene, it's how you stop intervening. And I really like the metaphor, which is not my own, but I love it about a really effective leader is on the balcony. They're not on the dance floor. And it's so hard because being on the balcony, you need emotional intelligence to do that because sometimes getting out of the way of smart people, letting them own the work, is the best thing you can do. And I think that takes a lot of self-control. So do you think the, there's a, there is a tangible difference between being a leader and being a manager? Because to me, what I observe a lot of the time is there is a very big distinction between those two. I absolutely do think there's a massive difference. And I think the lack of clarity around that is a problem. Yeah. Okay, so we're in this world of post-pandemic We've got hybrid working everywhere. Everyone's trying to figure out what on earth hybrid working means and can it be successful? Um, so how does that interact with this question of being a good leader? What should a leader, good leader do in a hybrid working environment? So if we go to what the problem is associated with the flexibility and the transition to hybrid working is a lot of people at the beginning of the pandemic actually quite like the flexibility. And then it became a problem for many. I mean, it was a really strong, I was reading just recently that 50% of 18 to 24 year olds have reported some kind of treatment for a mental illness. And when you look at employee surveys quite recently, many talented individuals are really interested in employers that take care of their well-being. And I think it might have gone there anyway, but I definitely think the pandemic and hybrid working has accelerated problems associated with well-being. And I think every single organisation, every leader needs to think about what's their response to that, because they're going to lose talent. People will take a salary drop if they think they're not going to get burnout at their organisation, and the organisation cares about that. And and I think, you know, what do you do about that? I, I think there's a very big danger that you, you know, send them on some kind of resilience program or you give them, you know, a free pass to a yoga class. And actually, it's much more profound than that. And I, I read only just recently an article that really moved me. And it says, look, some of the issues around burnout are because the job isn't doable. So giving me a time management class or giving me a resilience class is not actually job design is what's required. Have they got the ability to do that job in the time that they have? With, with the resources um, that they either don't have or do have. So I think this is a really, this is what leaders ought to be thinking about a lot because it, it affects their ability to attract and retain the best talent out there. 
and the next generation will not put up with an employer that doesn't care about their well-being. And caring about well-being doesn't mean, I don't think you're saying, that everybody should have the right to work from home now. Because from my experience, there is a, a really interesting um, conversation to be had around the community that you get from being in, in, a, in a close environment with your colleagues, the way that you learn together, and I've seen it myself, is much more accelerated when you're in physically together rather than when you're on a Zoom call. And being able to draw out the talents of introverts, for example, um, it's, mu it's much easier if you're face-to-face, -face, you might say. Others might disagree with that, actually. But, uh, um, but you know, it's a very complex picture, isn't it? And um, having a resolution from leadership which says you can be at home all the time or you have to be in the office all the time might not enable you to get the best out of your workforce. And, and that's quite a parental view, isn't it? You will do this. Um, so I think it's about, it is about empathy again. So I agree with you. I am, you know, I learned a huge amount as a graduate trainee, understanding office politics, the coaching I got by the proverbial water cooler, um, observing how things really get done. And that was all in-person office work. And I, I worry about graduate trainees now, some of whom have never been into the office. And I think that's such a learning that's a problem for learning it's a problem for how you create loyalty to the organization you know that social connection I mean, I've got two or three incredibly good my best friends I met in my you know younger years at work so how do you create that social connection directly links to how you're able to deliver on your your strategy so I agree but there's something here in a conversation that doesn't feel patronising that talks about, responds to the need for flexibility, but talks about how you get the connection to the organisation and its purpose that makes people want to come in and connect. And and also the advantage of getting that in-the-moment coaching. So, you know, I I believe if, if you'd given me longer on um, uh, all the things that a leader does, one of the things a great leader does, they see their role as a coach. Every conversation we have is an opportunity for coaching. So how, and often of that, that's impromptu in the moment. So how do you recreate that? You've got to be more intentional now, post pandemic. But I, I agree, I, I, I think it's, it's not one thing that's going to be the answer, but it has to start with the conversation. So what is your impression about how senior leaders actually think about culture? Is it explicit, implicit? Is it active? Is it reactive? And how does it become embedded in the way that they lead um, their companies? That's such a good question. I mean, the very short answer is, and this is a bit cynical, but I, I think most leaders talk a lot about culture and do very little about it and find it quite annoying when it comes to actually delivering the stuff they want to deliver. So again, a really interesting question, which I think about a lot. And I, But I think it's probably worth just saying, what, what do we mean by culture? Because I think that's one of those labels that's very easy to trot out. Um, I mean, for me, uh, sort of colloquially, I would say culture is all the things, it's like invisible glue. It's how work gets done that may not be obvious. It could be around values. Um, it could be around the way that you structure uh, your organization. It's definitely about leadership style. Who are the heroes? Who gets rewarded? What really matters? 
that goes way beyond a poster in the proverbial lift that talks about values. So it's the real the real stuff that glues everyone together. And, and, and I, I think the first question for leaders is, do you understand what, what culture means and how it might both help you and get in your way? And then what do you want to do to change it? And do you need to change it? And are you up for it? Because I think once you start, if you think about values and purpose, once you start talking about that as a CEO, you better then be ready for the conversation that ensues. And you better be a role model of that. So there is something very interesting about the conversation and whether you want to start with it and then what you do. So I think it, the short answer to your question is, I think leaders talk about culture, but I think they see it as a barrier to what they want to do and they're not prepared probably to work enough with it and, and think about how they might influence it. And when it gets hard and the numbers aren't doing so well, they'll abandon whatever initiative it was to look at values. For example, collaboration would be another one that I talk to a lot of leaders about. We want a culture of collaboration. And then I say to them, so what are you rewarding most right now in terms of bonuses? And funnily enough, it's individual performance. So what are you saying and what are you doing? But Sally, what, what do you think? I mean, this is a real area that you, I know, get into a lot. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that a lot of firms don't take the time to sort of think, what is the culture that we have? What is the culture that we want? What do we mean by culture? What do we understand culture to be? What do our employees understand it to be? And often there's a massive void between what the senior leadership think the culture of the firm is and what's actually happening yep. every day on the ground. And so I think, you know, um, leaders have to embrace culture. It's not a bad word. It's It doesn't have negative connotations. A lot of people think it does, but actually it just represents who we are as a firm. That's, you know, to me, that's what it is. And it's in, you know, it's embedded in the values and the purpose and the, the way that we do things around here. You know, that's um, that's what it's all about. But really understanding, to me, for a leader, it's not about what they think the culture is. It's about how that's translating to every employee every day. Absolutely. In the way that they behave, the way that they take their decisions, the way that they um, sort of interact with their uh, colleagues. Um, you know, so it's all of that piece. And once you embark on this journey, I agree with you, it's never ending because culture changes, evolves all the time. And to me, a good leader will always have culture, a discussion around culture on the agenda of every management meeting they have explicitly. So thinking about how a message has landed, thinking about where something has gone wrong and has it transparently being discussed so that everyone can learn from it, being open to making mistakes, um, being open to learning the lessons, you know, so all of these things are just everyday parts of the way a business runs. But a good leader will recognize that having the conversation, having transparency and continuing to learn and evolve and strengthen the culture is something that requires focus and everybody should be inspired to do, I guess. Yeah, and I, I love, I couldn't agree more. And I think that that to me is about how, it's a little bit back to the coaching, how does every conversation a leader has 
become um, another message around and a demonstration of the culture that you want to aspire to. And I think telling that compelling story in every possible way, it's really hard to over-communicate. And I think there's something great about A, the compelling story you keep on retelling, but also what you're doing is setting an expectation. Because I think one of the things I notice is you can talk generically about a culture change, but what are you asking people to do? You know, clarity, it's no mistake, clarity is the biggest driver of both individual and collective success. Clarity drives great performance. And it sounds obvious, but if I don't know why I'm doing it and how that benefits me and the organization, you've, you've lost before you've started. So it, it's, this is the culture we're trying to change to. This is what it means in practice. And this is what I expect of you. And this is what you can expect of me as a leader. I think it's a crucial starting point. Yeah. And quite often um, the questions asked, you know, can senior leaders as individuals actually change behaviours of their teams? And I would say absolutely, because the tone of the team comes from the leader. Everybody has somebody that they look up to, a mentor, a role model, a, a manager, and that influences at every level the way the team performs. So the the thing that a, a senior leader has to do is role model, to build trust, to build engagement, to empower. It's all about how he or she is behaving themselves every day. And one of the things I, you know, I always say to my team is somebody somewhere is observing you all the time and you are a role model to somebody in every aspect of your life. And so constantly think about how you're behaving because somebody is looking at that behavior and thinking, is that, does that represent me? Does it rep represent my company? Is it who I want to, to become? Who do you want to be? How, yeah. And I, that goes back to empathy, doesn't it? I mean, you know, I, I quite recently was asked to go and see a CEO as a potential coaching brief. And, uh, he came down to reception to get me. And I thought, that, that tells quite an interesting story. So he's not just sending me up. But as we went through, he absolutely barked at the reception, personal reception. And then he sat down and said, so what can you do for me? And I said, well, bearing in mind, you've just shouted at the receptionist for no reason I could see. I think now we could start there. And, you know, he, he was all about values. Yeah. And, and sometimes, um, you know, for our financial services firms, the regulators get their cues on the culture of a firm in the way that in talking to the, the reception staff, in talking to the company secretaries, sure. in talking to the most junior people on the teams, because they're the ones that really can give the most honest view of, you know, what are they seeing from the top? I mean, I, and very often um, when I, in the past, when I've done cultural reviews, as is reviews, you talk, I mean, the most junior, the catering staff often have a very accurate picture of the leaders that are demonstrating uh, the right values. Um, and they know absolutely how that feels to be on the ground. Back to the empathy point. Yeah. And, and I think it's always, you know, when I've gone out with the leaders and teams and see how they treat the restaurant staff, that's always an indicator to me. It's not what they say, it's what they do. Yeah. And when it isn't someone else that's senior. So um, so I've talked a bit about um, can a senior leader change the behaviours? 
how do you see that permeating, that behaviour permeating through an organisation? Well, I think it's pretty much, again, what we've been saying. It's about repeatability. And every conversation is an opportunity to talk about the change, to role model it. Um, I also think um, success tends to beget success. So when you've had some great examples of how new behaviours have made a difference, so to what extent do you reward that, talk about it, get the teams to talk about how that felt so that you're creating new models of success and new heroes and that people can see, if you go back to the example I gave earlier around an organisation who wanted to change the culture, make it more collaborative, make it more team-based, they had to also look at the rewards and the systems and processes that enabled that. And at at the time, they had a bonus system that was based on individual uh, performance. So think about your systems and processes. Think about your communication strategy, as we've discussed, but think about how your systems are also helping you to tell the same story. And I think today, of course, there's a huge uh, technology component to that. How are your systems and your processes supporting better collaboration? I mean, Slack, I don't know, Sally, if you use Slack, but you know, there are lots of communication mechanisms now, and I am no expert, but you know, knowledge management is at the heart of really good collaboration. So are you providing your people with the right skills? And that's both behavioural skills, but also, you know, the skills of technology in order to share ideas. And I guess the incentive structures are that's so important. Yeah. And so at the heart of this, it's all about having really clear expectations. Starts on, there. Starts there, yeah. Clarity, clarity, clarity. And, I, you know, I think that's a direct driver of motivation, if you think about what motivates someone, I, I like to think it in terms of the three C's. So if you want someone to be motivated, number one, are they clear? And that's binary. I can't, again, be a little bit clear. So I'm either clear or I'm not. But that's not enough. I then need to be confident that I can do it. And I don't mean, you know, Yahoo confidence, locker room confidence. I mean, have I got the skills? Have I got the resources, the time, the money? Because um, I could be very clear that you want me to be a surgeon this afternoon and, you know, chop someone's leg off. But I have no confidence I could do that safely. Um, and then the third thing, which I think is often missed with leaders, is I might be clear. I might be confident. But are there any consequences? And that's positive and negative. So what happens if I do? What's in it for me? And what happens if I don't? And many cultures that I work in who are trying to be high performance cultures, they tolerate poor performance. I might add a fourth to your C's. Oh, go on. Um, communicate. So yes. I would say, which you could say say is a subset of clarity, but I would say communicate, 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 because that is at the heart of engagement. And what you need is employee engagement to be at a high level in order for them to own, embrace culture and culture change. And I would build on your communicate <laughs> with an idea around that because you're absolutely right is and make it imaginative and interesting and make it two-way. Because I, mean, I think you're, you mean that, but the, what you need is a conversation. And if you think about it, I never, I never forget my first mentor said to me, you know, what are organisations except people in conversation? So how do you make those conversations really engaging? How do you make those conversations count every day? And how do you make those conversations two-way? Because again, a good leader is good at saying, this is my point of view, but I hold it lightly. Am I missing something? 
talk to me. Tell me what it's like on the ground. And do you think the expectations of leaders are changing in this? You know, we talked about the current economic um, crisis. We talked about um, sustainability and ESG. Um, we talked about hybrid working. Does that change the way leaders have to think? Yeah, and there's a good reason why I'm a consultant rather than actually a leader myself because you know I think it's very hard. It's a tough job because it it's not enough to have a very compelling vision um, and be making the numbers anymore. Part of the expectation is now that you have got that empathy, that you are tapping into how your people feel and frankly how you're the communities that you work in feel. And what is your point of view on issues that go way beyond maybe your product or what you're trying to achieve? I I think there is much more um, pressure on leaders to be much more emotionally literate than ever before. I think it's hard. And I don't think those are intuitive skills. So if, if a leader says, having listened to this, okay, I now need to do something different. Let's give them an indication of what can go wrong, you know, what are, what are your pointers and your tips for how to avoid the pitfalls of what can happen? I think if you're trying to be perfect, you will automatically fail. So I would start with the mindset of intent matters more than technique. So is my intention to try and do the right thing? And when I don't get that right, I'm open to the feedback and the criticism in a way that doesn't feel defensive and feels like I'm learning. Because I, I just think there is a very unrealistic expectation that many leaders have of themselves that I've got to be right. And I think you've got to let go of that and just say, what is the thing I'm trying to do here? If I'm trying to listen, these are my attempts to understand, but I won't always get it right. So that's the first thing. So be kind, because only when you're kind to yourself, you can be kind to others. I think the second thing is, is to what extent can you really honestly say that you understand what the most junior people in your organization feel not what they think how they feel when's the last time that you walked the floor when people are in of course or found interesting ways to connect with people that are working at home when did you last ask them what is the experience like of working in this organization and whether your spouse values actually feel like a reality for them that's a great question are you interested would be another good question. Because I think what people sniff, it's almost visceral. They know when someone's faking. So you better find out what you care about first. So if you don't care about whether the organisation feels that they're being listened to, don't ask that question. That, that's my advice. But because once you've asked it, you need to do something with it. You need to listen and then respond. You might not want to do what they say that they want you to do, for all sorts of reasons, but you've got to have been seen to listen and respond to that yeah. feedback. And that, you know, that it's a word that's banded around a lot. Be authentic. I mean, your job isn't just say yes all the time. I, th I think sharing some of your dilemmas is such a helpful way of, of getting people's respect. So we know you want to work at home more often or you, we want us to embrace flexible working in a way perhaps that we haven't as much as you like. But I've got a dilemma here. And just taught people respect people that are honest about what's really going on. This is my dilemma. I need people in the workplace to foster brilliant innovation. You know, I, I want you to be here so that we can have some really good quality, innovative discussions about how we drive our strategy. 
I think that's less effective if we're doing that virtually. So that's going to mean you might have to be in for the next few weeks more than you want to. How are we going to make that work for us? And I, I just think having the answer versus asking the right question is the shift here and getting people to help you. Most people, my fundamental belief, be another tip for leaders, is that most people want to do a good job. Most people want to come to work and do something meaningful and purposeful that they feel good about. So harness that as opposed to thinking that people want to just, you know, laze around. I think harness people's good intentions and assume that they want to do good things. That's incredibly liberating. So this is all well and good, Fran. And it's definitely the, the, um, the leadership style that I um, subscribe to. But it is just one school of thought. And so what is it that you think evidences that this leadership style is more successful than other styles? Well, this is where I want to get sort of quite boring is just give you lots of stats. But I'm going to try not to. What I am going to say is those organisations, and there is data to support this, that uh, demonstrate that live this kind of leadership uh, doctrine, let's call it a doctrine for a moment, more people stay for longer and productivity is directly affected. So it, this isn't just because I think this is a nicer way to be, although I do. It actually has a direct impact on performance. So if you wanted to be just very commercial, there is very good reason Highly engaged, motivated people perform better, stay longer, and they are also happier. And you could argue that a leader's biggest contribution to the world, actually, is employee happiness. So I, I don't think it's a matter of argument that more engaged people perform better, stay longer, and the organisations that demonstrate that, that actually feel like that, they're able to attract and keep more than their fair share of talent and once they get their talent the talent stays there for longer people feel commitment for the organization which then translates into bottom line results increased productivity and if you care about this increased life satisfaction so what's the one practical thing you would say to all those leaders out there that have a slightly different leadership style to the one that you're um, advocating, but who want to make that first step towards change. When's the last time you asked your team how they felt? Thank you very much, Fran. That's been a very, very insightful session. As We could have gone on for forever, but we're going to stop there. Um, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Sally, as ever. 